0: Welcome to the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Remember, your direct support makes our show possible, and you can directly support this podcast by visiting shillingshow.com and then clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page to make a monthly contribution. We appreciate your support. The Schilling Show Unleashed podcast welcomes Ryan T. Anderson, president of Ethics and Public Policy Center, co-author of the new book, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. And Ryan Anderson, welcome to The Schilling Show Unleashed podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: I want to start here because it should be obvious, but it's not because it's not how we talk about things. But abortion is a very hideous thing. We just don't like to look at it that way.
1: Um, I think that's exactly right. Abortion is... Um, a form of lethal violence uh, that takes place in what should be one of the most sacred and protective relationships and locations in all human existence, uh, which is a mother's womb and the relationship between a mother and her child. Unfortunately, what we've done is, you know, through a series of both bad cultural ideologies and cultural practices and bad political uh, decisions, Supreme Court rulings, things like this is we've inserted violence into that location and into that relationship. Uh, and you're exactly right to say that it, it really should be much more disturbing than I think many people tend to view it.
0: Can we go back and take a little bit of a trip down memory lane and look at pre-Roe history of abortion in the United States? Because it's been so long since we dealt with this decision. There's a lot of people alive who have no idea what things were like before that.
1: Prior to Roe, um, more or less every state in the nation, but actually I'll, I'll rephrase that, Every state in the nation was making its own abortion policies and the vast majority of them had fairly protective laws uh, when it came to the unborn. Um, Just a handful of states, little by little, were democratically expanding what they would refer to as access to reproductive health, access to, you know, in reality, killing the unborn child. Mm -hmm. But even then, it wasn't what Roe gave us. It wasn't abortion on demand throughout all nine months of pregnancy. And so prior to Roe, this was taking place in all all of the states, uh, they were making their own policies when it came to abortion. Um, the vast majority of them had laws that protected unborn babies throughout the entirety of their lives. And then a couple of states were starting to liberalize their abortion laws. Um, but even then, none of them went so far as what uh, happened with Roe uh, and Doe and then Casey, which more or less was abortion on demand for any reason at all throughout all nine months of pregnancy.
0: So did Roe reflect the will of the nation, or did the nation then change to reflect the will of the court ruling in Roe? Because it it almost seems by what you said that it's the latter.
1: Uh, Definitely much more the latter, although, I mean, I don't think um, the American people ever fully accepted Roe either. Don't believe the public opinion polls um, where the pollsters say, well, the majority of people support Roe. The majority of the people have no idea what Roe did. Uh, And you saw this in the days after the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe. Many people thought this meant that abortion was illegal throughout all 50 states, But in reality, all, of the, all that the Dobbs decision did was said the people and their elected representatives can now pass their own laws about abortion, right? Dobbs neither imposed abortion on demand throughout all 50 states the way that Roe and Casey had done, nor did it prohibit abortion in all 50 states the way that you know many pro-lifers would like us to eventually get to that point. Dobbs didn't go all the way there. And so many Americans, are um, you, you see the conflicted nature of public opinion on this when you ask them, do you support a 20-week bill? Do you support a 15-week bill? Do you support a six-week bill? And you get very, very high numbers saying, yes, we support those things. And then you ask them, do you support Roe v. Wade? And then you also get numbers saying yes. And people don't realize that those those propositions are in conflict, But which is simply to say that I do not think uh, the American public is deeply committed to abortion on demand throughout all nine months of pregnancy. And now it's up to people like you and me and other people who can shape public opinion to shape it in a more and more pro-life direction.
0: There's an issue here in Virginia where we have a pro-life governor who's been kind of put on the spot in in a purple state to say what he would do next. And he said he'd be looking at a 15-week or a 20-week bill. And immediately the critics were saying, well, the vast, vast majority of abortions are happening before that threshold, and therefore what you're proposing isn't going to really help that much. I'd love for you to respond to that.
1: Both of those things are true. What the governor is proposing is better than where we are, and it's a step in the right direction. Um, but I think the statistic is something like 93% of abortions take place prior to 20 weeks. For that matter, I think it's also prior to 15 weeks. You know, not many take place between the 15 and the 20-week marker either. And so if Virginia had a law that prohibited abortions at 15 weeks, it's not going to save um, all that many lives. That said, the seven percent, you know, lives that it is saving the, those those children matter, uh, and that's better than where we currently are. And so, uh, if that's the best um, the governor thinks is possible, given you know control of the state house is still, you know, I, I forget the exact head count right now in Virginia, but Virginia is a purpley state. I would prefer to see the governor be a bit bolder, proposing either uh, if, if he's at twenty or fifteen proposing a 12 week bill proposing a six week, you know, once the baby's heartbeat can be detected, that's going to save more lives. It's going to move us in a, in a better direction. But I do think that we should not allow uh, politics as the art of the possible to rule out incremental progress. Um, We have to realize that a year ago, Terry McAuliffe was the governor of Virginia. And so Virginia is not, uh, it's not a deep red state. That said, I think the majority of Democrats Are open to reasonable pro-life laws. And so we have to keep pushing the nation in more and more pro-life directions. And this is an opportunity for political leadership.
0: Going back to just post-Roe decision, what were the immediate changes that we saw in American culture? Because again, I think it's very instructive. We take for granted where we are now, but what happened immediately following?
1: One of the things that we kind of document in the book uh, is how it enshrined both Roe and then Casey, enshrined a faulty understanding of equality. It's in conjunction with the court rulings and a bad form of feminism, second wave feminism, that equated equality with sameness. And so this became a, a cultural vision in which males and females are equal, meaning males and females are the same, meaning, the distinctively female attributes when it comes to reproductive cycle, when it comes to reproduction inside of the womb, those things need to be changed to make the female body more like the male body. Um, that it gave a cultural vi- vision that my wife's body is somehow an defective version of my body and that the male body is the norm. And to make the female body equal to the male body, we have to sterilize it and then we might have to kill the unborn child, and and I think that's been a hugely disastrous uh, cultural message that we've sent to young girls, in particular or young women, as they mature, thinking that in order to compete in the economy, to keep in the to compete in the educational system, I have to compete as if I'm male. And then we've structured our higher education system and our uh, workplace around a male form of availability, you know, never having to take time for family reasons because. I'm always uh, available. So a much better way, and, and this is something that um, Alexander and I point out in the book, that overturning Roe gives us the opportunity to re-envision what our culture, what our society, what our marketplace, what our higher education system should look like, where we take both the male way of being human and the female way of being human seriously. We take both equally. Uh, and we say the the female version of being embodied is something that's good, true, and beautiful, and therefore we should respect it, we should cherish it, and we should have laws and policies um, that protect it.
0: In the book, Ryan, you talk a lot about abortion harming various segments of society. I want to start with the unborn child, because that should be the most obvious. But there are arguments that the unborn child in the womb is a human, or not a human, or maybe is a human, but not a person. Would you help us to understand those arguments? What points are they making, and why are they wrong?
1: Sure. So, so what we do in that very first chapter is we say, look, the focal harm of abortion is that it kills a human being. Yeah. And then we point out there are there are a variety of ways in which the pro-abortion activists try to deny that. And so the first way is they say, look, look, it's not really a human being. It's a clump of cells. We don't know when life begins. You know, it's not a human being until and then they try to you know, push back the clock on when uh, the organism in the womb becomes a human or becomes a human being. And we just point out that, you know, what, the, the consensus of embryologists, developmental biologists, uh, consensus of the textbooks, consensus of our own two eyes, and we see that ultrasound image, that the life of a human being begins at the completion of fertilization, the completion of conception. A new child is conceived uh, when the sperm and the egg, which are both functionally and genetically parts of the mother and the father, when those two gametes Come together and fuse and create a new organism, that one-cell zygote, which very quickly starts developing and growing into the multi-cell embryo, into the you know multi um, organism of the fetus. That's the way that you, me, and every one of our listeners uh, came into existence. Anyone who understands basics of modern biology understands that reality, which is why the more sophisticated uh, defenders of abortion they say, look, of course it's a human being, but it's not yet a human person. Uh, that human beings are just, you know, the flesh and blood organism. And of course, the baby in the womb is a human being, but it's not yet a human person. And it's not a human person because it can't yet talk. It can't yet think in an advanced way. It doesn't have self-awareness. It doesn't have a conception of itself as a self. And the problem here, there, there are multiple problems. One of the problems here, is that, and, and the most honest, abortion defenders admit this, is that it also justifies infanticide. Mm -hmm. That The the newborn baby can't talk, can't think in higher ways, doesn't have a sense of itself as a self, it's not self-aware, doesn't have self-consciousness, et cetera, et cetera. And so people like Peter Singer, professor at Princeton where I did my undergraduate degree, he says it's speciesism akin to racism or sexism to treat one species better than another species. And so you and I are speciesist, to racist or sexist, if we think members of the human family have more moral status, worth, dignity than members of the bovine family or the canine family. Now we respond to all of this and we say, look, it's not a form of discrimination, it's not an ism to say that a human being made in the image and likeness of God, which is the theological explanation, or an animal with a rational nature has a different moral status than creatures that don't have a rational nature. And that this rational nature is also a personal nature, even if you can't yet exercise your personal capacities. So we all know when we take a newborn child, that one day if all goes well, that child will be walking and talking and thinking and having self-awareness and all the personal attributes that we ascribe to persons, we all know that the newborn puppy will never do any of those things. Mm. And the reason why is that the human baby has a personal nature. And so we, we, we spell this all out. And then the lastly, we reply to two other counter arguments because you know, then the more sophisticated th- thinkers say, all right, you're right, it's a human being and it's a human person, but I'm personally opposed to abortion, I can't impose my morality on others. Wow. Or people will say, okay, yeah, 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 it's wrong, I could legislate on this, but there's another consideration bodily autonomy of the mother. And what we point out in both of these cases is that uh, it's not an overreach for the state to say, you cannot kill another innocent human being. That you know imposing your morality on another, to a certain extent, is what, what all of government is about. Every piece of governmental legislation, public policy is based on someone's morality. And the only question is, is it good morality or bad morality, true morality or false morality? At the very least, we have laws that ban homicide and our point is that if it's a justified law to say you can't kill adults, it's also a justified law to say you can't kill or you can't kill children. Um, that fetal homicide laws are just as justified as adult homicide laws, and bodily autonomy uh, has its limits. Uh, and one of those limits, again, is killing innocent people. Uh, and so we agree that you know women enjoy rights to bodily autonomy, but the way in which those rights are exercised matters. And so whenever people talk about reproductive freedom. You know The response is yes, you should be free to choose or not to choose whether or not to reproduce. But if you're already carrying a child in your womb, reproduction has already happened. And so your, your right to reproductive freedom has already been exercised. The child is not an unjust aggressor. The child is not um, a parasite. The child is a human being with equal status and dignity and therefore with a right to life. And then we therefore have duties to care.
0: The Schilling Show Unleashed podcast continues in a moment with Ryan Anderson. Associated Press award-winning journalist, Rob Schilling. Get your fix. Shilling Show Unleashed. The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast, where we return. Our guest is Ryan T. Anderson, and the new book is Tearing Us Apart How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. So I want to go to this one uh, because I've heard some discussion recently that if these people, the the vast majority of people who are in favor of abortion, some even promoting it as a good thing, were to actually have to watch an abortion, that minds would be changed. And I'm wondering, are they so hardened that even seeing this uh, gruesome thing take place would not change their minds, or do you think it would?
1: So I I think it depends on the audience. Partly because I think some people respond to images like that by shutting down. You know, they want to close their eyes. They don't want to acknowledge the reality. And therefore, th- th- they can be more likely to say, well, you guys are the extremists uh, exposing me to um, these graphic images, et cetera, et cetera. But I think for other people, it can be very powerful that you know, th- this helps them grasp uh, the reality of what's taking place. Uh, And so, again, I I just think it's largely dependent on, you know, the individual audience member.
0: You have a chapter on abortion harming women. And this is so interesting to me because I have a friend who had an abortion uh, many, many decades ago. And she stands outside of the local pregnancy termination center here and holds up a sign saying, I regret my abortion. And I know that she knows she's forgiven by God. That's not the issue but it still haunts her to this day that she took the life in that way. So when we say that abortion harms women, you know, then the other side says, well, it's kind of like having a tooth pulled with no reflection at all towards what this does in the future.
1: That's exactly right. What we do in that second chapter. So, you know, you know, after we look at how abortion harms children by killing them, uh, we also then point out abortion is not good for women. And first we point out that there are, you know, immediate physical risks of abortion physical complications, physical harms, Um, there are also longer-term physical complications. The the first set of physical complications is that, you know, abortion can be a risky procedure, uh, both surgical abortion and chemical abortion, especially when chemical abortion is prescribed via telemedicine and when uh, mothers self-administer the abortion pills. Uh, You know, a variety of physical complications there, but then so too long-term. And we point out, you know, the, the various studies that have, uh, both highlighted and explained why there's a link between abortion and breast cancer, why there's a link between abortion and then greater difficulty conceiving and then um, bearing the child throughout all 40 weeks of pregnancy, earlier uh, term birth, preterm birth, lower birth weight, things like this for some of the pregnancies. We also point out that in addition to the physical consequences, there are psychological and emotional consequences. Women do regret their abortions, as your friend um, uh, testifies to. Many women regret those abortions because they were told it's just like pulling a tooth, when in reality it's not. Uh, Many women regret those abortions because they didn't really get to choose so much as they felt coerced, constrained, pressured into having an abortion, right? Many women do not shout their abortions because they experience their abortion, not as liberating, but as a, a personal defeat. And then lastly, we point out that it's actually damaging for all women, whether you've had an abortion or not, to live in a culture, live in a society that says women need abortion in order to be equal to men. Right? If you live in a society that says the way in which we're going to guarantee your equality is by sterilizing your body and killing your children, then you don't really live in a society that respects female equality. Society that respects female equality would respect the female way of being human and would have a variety of cultural, social, uh, and public policy uh, procedures in place that would enable women to live out their bodily natures. And and these are things like paid family leave. They're like the pregnancy resource centers uh, that the left has been attacking ever since Alito's opinion was leaked from the Supreme Court, right? A variety of ways in which we could build a real culture of life, which pro-lifers have been doing for the past 50 years, but pro-lifers have been doing it on their own, right? They haven't been met with pro choicers I think this puts the lie to the claim that the other side is pro-choice. If they were pro-choice, they would be volunteering at the Pregnancy Resource Centers. They would be donating money to the Pregnancy Resource Centers. They wouldn't be firebombing them. They wouldn't be vandalizing them they would be saying oh yeah yeah, we're not pro-abortion a woman who uh, wants to choose life we want to empower that woman to exercise that choice and yet that's not what you see
0: I'm thinking about some of the events that I've seen here locally but across the country where there are women bringing children to these pro-abortion rallies and thinking from the child's point of view My mother is advocating for killing a child who's just a little younger than me. I mean, do kids think about it like that? And is there an impact on children when the parents are very pro-abortion and make it known in front of the kids?
1: You know, that I don't know. And I don't know if any child psychologists or developmental psychologists have really looked into this. It's worth exploring. My intuition, though, I mean, you know, I, I, I can't point you to any studies. But my intuition, you know, as a parent and just as an informed observer, is that parental love is supposed to be unconditional. Yes. Right? Uh, and so you as a child are supposed to know that your mother, your father loves you unconditionally. There's nothing you've done to merit their love, and therefore there's nothing you could do to lose their love. And abortion, especially parents who are taking their children to abortion ra- rallies, actually seems to send um, the exact opposite message that my child was not someone who I unconditionally loved. Um, Certain children might not merit my love. They might actually deserve to be killed. Uh, And therefore, I think it has to send a very conflicting message to children once they can fully understand what's going on, right? Because I mean, many of these kids, unfortunately are being told lies that, oh, it's not really a baby in the belly. It only becomes a baby later on You know, if you can't even tell that the mother is pregnant, that she's not really a mother, right? There's just a clump of cells growing in her uterus. I mean, so so I I also don't think we should be naive about what these children are being taught by their parents. They're not being taught when life begins or the, the dignity of life. They're being taught many of the same euphemisms. But in general, I think anytime we're lying to kids, it's wrong. It's a problem. And so if we're lying to children about the reality of uh, their prenatal brother and sisters, or if we're lying to children about the duties that adults owe to children, I think we're going wrong in both, both cases.
0: You have an interesting argument in the book, at least it's discussed it. So people say something like, if you don't like abortion, don't have one. And then uh, you compare that to slavery. Would you expand on that?
1: Sure. I mean, this, this is very familiar rhetoric to many of our listeners where the, You'll hear people say, I'm personally opposed, but politically in favor of choice. The old Mario Cuomo line.
2: Or you'll see people
1: saying, well, look, well, what's wrong with you? Pro-lifeers? If you guys don't like abortion, just don't have an abortion, but don't impose your morality on me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very similar to someone in the 1800s saying, wait, 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 Abraham Lincoln, other you know people working to emancipate the slaves. If you guys don't like slavery, don't own a slave. Mm-hmm. If the North doesn't want to have slavery, then you guys. Can prohibit slavery but if the south wants to have slavery we should be free to have slavery we should be free to own slaves and you can see that those arguments fail uh, and, and they just fail you know radically there's there's no defense uh, for them and we're gonna now face this in both respects on the personal level the, the people saying look if you're pro-life um you personally just don't have an abortion but let me choose to have an abortion but then also on the political level it can't be, well, look, if California and New York and Massachusetts and Illinois want to have abortion, they should have abortion. And if Texas and Alabama and Florida don't want to have abortion, they should be free not to have abortion. Uh, Lincoln's insight that a house divided cannot stand is true not just on um, the slavery issue. It's also true on the abortion issue. Uh, and so eventually we're going to have to come to a national set settlement, uh, and that national settlement settlement needs to come down on the right side of the issue, right? It needs to come down on the side um, that, as as we recently celebrated, all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with inalienable rights, and amongst these is the right to life. Um, And our nation needs to protect that inalienable right, um, that all lives are created equal, and we need to therefore do it in all 50 states, and that very likely is going to require a federal solution.
0: We've seen an escalation in language, particularly, and I'm sure you've seen this, Ryan. There's people saying things like, oh, I can't wait to kill babies. Uh, I want to kill a baby. And this was something we never heard before. So my question for you is, was it always the case that people felt like this? Or if not, what's driving the present extremism?
1: Sure. I mean, so it's not always the case. I mean, there was a time in which Bill Clinton and others had to say things like safe, legal, and rare. Yes. They they had to at least mouth those platitudes um, because they were more cognizant of where public opinion was, uh, and that most Americans, even pro-choice Americans, are conflicted about abortion. They're not shouting their abortions. I think the radicalism that you're seeing isn't um, unique to abortion. The radicalism that we're seeing uh, is taking place across the political high salient issues, and it's that Radicals have captured the left wing of the Democratic Party and whether they're radicals on LGBT issues, radicals on uh, um, environmental issues, and now radicals on the abortion issue, they're now um, driving things. Joe Biden and others are captive to the furthest left wing extreme of the political party. And unfortunately they're catering to that furthest left wing extreme. It's not where the American people are, which is why I think long term, there's a cause for hope here in that we're going to see, I think, a splintering of the Democratic Party uh, between more historic Democrats who are like, you know, we're the party of the little guy. We're the party of the New Deal. We're the, we're the party of defending the weak, the marginalized and those on the fringes of society. We're not the party of radical ideologies. Right. So that, that'll be one splinter. And then the other splinter will be we are the party of radical ideologies. I just think the reality is that the American people are not with that fringe um, activist
0: group. Finally, Ryan, you mentioned earlier a house divided cannot stand. And it doesn't seem to me that there is reconciliation over this issue uh, because people have become so defiant, demanding a right to abortion. So does that mean an actual division of the country or do we just fall because we have another, another civil war?
1: I think the long term uh, outcome here is that we work to persuade uh, our neighbors and that it's gradual at first. And then I think the law has a pedagogical function, which is a philosopher's big word for teaching function. The law shape public opinion, the law shape culture. And just as Roe deformed culture for two generations, Roe taught that there was a constitutional right to abortion, when in reality, there's no right to abortion. Uh, Roe taught that women's equality requires abortion when in reality women's equality does not require abortion. A pro-life law, pro-life laws, plural, you know, across the various states at the federal level are going to teach something about the dignity of human life, the equality of human life, and the ways in which we can protect female equality without forcing women to kill their babies. Uh, And it's going to be gradual at first, right? The first federal pro-life law might only be 20 weeks and then it might become 15 and then it might become 12. It might then become six. So little by little, it's going to require that we have some pro-life Democrats willing to vote for that 20 week law, that 15 week law, that 12 uh, week law. And partly that's going to be because the reality is in purple states. Again, are that that's where the voters are going to be. So, so I don't think it you know leads to a civil war. I don't think it leads to the country splitting apart. I just think it's going to require in the same way that it took 49 years to overturn Roe. I mean God willing, it won't take that long to get good laws enacted, but it is going to take time, effort, strategy, coordination, and resolve from pro-lifers in my generation to now do the democratic work, the legislative work, uh, and perhaps eventually once we get the right votes on the court, you know judicial work to protect unborn babies everywhere.
0: Ryan if people would like to get a copy of the book Tearing Us Apart How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing or if they'd like to follow you online how can they do that
1: Sure so the book is uh, available wherever books are sold so no one's canceled the book yet in terms of retailers we did have an issue with the audiobook distributor but you know we, we found a different distributor so the book's for sale wherever um, you normally buy your books uh, you can follow me um, if you're on social media Twitter you know I tweet out lots of articles that you know that I've written that other people have written that I think are edifying um, the twitter handle is at ryan t a n d uh, and then our website is eppc.org so the ethics and public policy center eppc.org
0: it's such an important book and so well written ryan anderson thank you so much for joining us today on the shilling show unleashed podcast thank you that concludes another edition of the shilling show unleashed podcast Visit us online at shillingshow.com where you can directly support this podcast by clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page and making a monthly donation. Your support is essential for the continuation of the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Until next time.